At first glance, it might seem strange to think of an archaeologist working in a state highway administration office. But in reality, the two go hand in hand. Julie Shablitsky has conducted archaeological research and digs everywhere from Scotland to Maryland to California. She's utilized augmented reality to allow people to explore reconstructions of slave quarters. And she's done all of this as well as being the chief of the cultural resources section at the Maryland State Highway Administration. Move out of the passing lane. You don't want to miss this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today in studio by Julie Shablitsky, who is the Chief of Cultural Resources at the Maryland State Highway Administration. She has her doctorate from Portland State University in Oregon with an emphasis in urban archaeology. And after graduation, she carried out research on overseas Chinatowns, the Donner Party of California, as well as the medieval estate of Armisfield in Scotland. Her Maryland research has included focusing on a War of 1812 battlefield in Kent County on Maryland's eastern shore, as well as a cultural landscape along the General's Highway in Anne Arundel County, and the search for Rochambeau's Revolutionary War encampments. It's a pleasure to have you here in studio today to talk about all these fun things that you've been working on at State Highway. Thanks for having me. So how does one... We've talked to some archaeologists before, but and it's always interesting to kind of get a sense for what takes you on the path to become an archaeologist. Growing up, did you know you always wanted to be an archaeologist? Yeah, I always knew I wanted to be an archaeologist since the age of seven. And people always ask, well, how did that interest um, begin? And I grew up in Minnesota, and all of our driveways in the country are covered with limestone gravel. And so if you look closely, there's all these little fossils in those limestone pebbles. And that's kind of got me interested in history in general. And then I grew up with uncles who liked to walk the farm fields looking for arrowheads. And so then it began from there, and I, and I started looking at all different books, whether it was King Tutankhamun in Egypt, Mesoamerica. And I think that's how a lot of kids get started an interest in archaeology is trying to look for those, look at that archaeology from the faraway places. And then in the end, you end up digging in your own backyard. So it's interesting because not all the other archaeologists we've interviewed knew they wanted to do it since they were age seven. You've been set on it from, from that early age. And so you immediately in college kind of went on that path into anthropology and started going in that direction? Absolutely. At the age of 15 was my first archaeological dig. I ended up having a friend who had a boyfriend who was in college, and he was going to go on this, this archaeology dig in, on the border of Iowa and South Dakota. I said, well, can I go with? And they're like, absolutely. And so we spent the day <laughs> out digging in Native American trash pits, and, and that's where I met the archaeologist I was going to study under during my undergraduate career. Wow. And so did you stay in school until you got your PhD? Did you stay right through, or did you stop and do some work in the field, or how did that all come together? I pretty much went straight through. Uh, there was a period where between my master's and my PhD, I took a couple of years off to get some more experience. That's one thing that I think that was good for my career is that I was made sure that every single summer I was in the field digging or doing something related to my discipline. And then by the time I had my master's degree, I took two years working for the Forest Service in Oregon. 
And that's where I was able to lead crews, record sites, and just really get out there and get my hands dirty. Literally. Literally, yeah. <laughs> and then by the time I had a couple of years there, I kind of felt like I needed something more. And at that point, I started looking at PhD programs. And I settled at Portland State University since they had an urban studies department that also did urban history. But yet we also had a pretty nice master's degree program uh, at the Portland State University with Ken Ames and, and Virginia Butler. So those two individuals really helped me get my program together where I was able to get a doctorate degree in urban archaeology. And it's interesting, urban archaeology, because everything you've described to this point, you were in farm fields and sounds kind of like rural areas, South Dakota and why the shift then to urban? Did it just kind of piqued your interest at that point? Yeah, urban archaeology is very interesting. It's very complex. When you think about the way that sites are created, if you're in the middle of a farm field, you can imagine there's someone camping there, and then over time it gets buried by wind and leaves and, and erosion and alluvial waterborne forces. And with urban archaeology, you have human beings going in there and messing with with the space. So you have fill up episodes, you have building, you have more building, you have bulldozing away of layers. And so it really is more of a challenge. But I think the reason I was, my interest was piqued in urban archaeology is because it was something different. It was something that was going to set me apart from other people. And I think that's the goal as an archaeologist is you wanted to have some sort of skill, whether it's re reading soils in a complex environment or studying animal bones or paleobotany, you want to do something that's going to set you apart. And so is that what then set you up or qualified you to work for a highway administration? It doesn't really seem like it's urban, but it definitely is the kind of archaeology where it's been messed with by people, I guess. Right. By the time I got my PhD, I was actually supervising a site that was going to be constructed as part of the Portland State University, University system. A building was going to be built in this location. And I was hired on to do the archaeology. And while I was doing that, I saw that there, that there was an Oregon Department of Transportation position that opened up. And since I had just graduated, I needed a job. I didn't necessarily, I wasn't pulled into the academics. I mean, that was an option, but I never felt that I had to do it. So I kept my, my dance book open, if you will. <laughs> so I went ahead and I, and I saw that job. I applied for it. And then the rest is history. I just kept on seeing that there was this beautiful opportunity where you had really active archaeology, really active archaeological history surveys happening because transportation departments across the state, each one funds the most research in each one of those states. So at, in Maryland, for example, we fund probably over one to two million dollars worth of archaeological research and archaeological history surveys in the state each year. Which is the most of any That agency. is the most of age, any agency, university system. So that means that you have this wonderful opportunity to get out into the public and to use this state and federal funding to do something important. Yeah, and I think that that's perhaps something people aren't familiar with or aware of is how much work is, is happening within our state highway administrations all across the country. So when did you end up in Maryland? How long have you been in your current position? I've been in Maryland for about 13 years. So when I first came over from Oregon, I had been here a year and I had a University of Oregon research position where I was finishing up work on overseas Chinese sites and then also the Donner Party of California. So I was kind of wrapping up my West Coast adventures. And then once I came here, I began right away at the State Highway Administration and kind of picked up where I left off when I was in Oregon. And before we jump into State Highway, I feel like the listeners wouldn't be okay with us not picking up on what you've done with the Donner Party, because I think that's pretty interesting. You dropped an interesting little nugget there. What all happened there? What did you do? What work was done on that? What'd you find? 
Yeah, the Donner Party of California, it's one of these cautionary westward tales where you have a group of emigrants who are leaving everything they know behind to go across the mountains, the prairies, the plains, to find something new and better for themselves and for their children. And what we had there, we had a situation where we have these group of pioneers in order to survive, they had to resort to survival cannibalism. And our job as archaeologists, um, at that point, I was a free agent. I think I just got done with my PhD at that point. And I had the opportunity to work with the Discovery Channel, who funded us a little bit of money to begin to explore the Donner Party, specifically the, the camp at Alder Creek. Some people don't know that there are actually two locations where the Donner Party wintered. One was at Donner Lake and the other one was at Alder Creek in the meadow. And that's where I looked at the, the place where, where they had wintered. So you have a group of people, probably a couple dozen, who tried to survive. And after going months without real food, they took the last thing they could, which was the remains of their loved ones and had to consume them to survive. And did you actually find something? from that sort of short of an experience? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing is that these sorts of the camps are so ephemeral. So there's not a lot of, there's not bricks and stones of foundations. You're looking at a group of two dozen people who wintered in a meadow in camp in a campsite. So you're looking for, you know, like a little fire hearth. You're looking for locations of where they had their tents. And of course, that's kind of difficult. So what do you, how do you find that? And in this case, we went ahead and we used detectors to look for uh, nails, we looked for buttons, and that kind of honed us into approximate location where X marked the spot. And then from there, we began to excavate and we found the broken dishes, we found the lost buttons, we found little bits of writing slate. But what things we, we did not find is we didn't find human remains. And people always said, well, doesn't that prove that cannibalism didn't happen? And the answer is no. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So in this sort of situation, we had to go ahead and look at the historical record again and try and understand what was happening with the soils. And we came to the conclusion that the human remains, the bone that was in the ground, quickly disintegrated because it was, such, it was in such acidic soil. The only bone that we ever had survive was the bone that was chopped up, boiled, and burned, and calcined, which means that it gets so hot and so exposed to fire and heat that it becomes almost like porcelain. So then it survives in the archaeological record. So we did have evidence of them eating oxen and even deer, which introduced the Native American element because it showed that we had Native Americans coming in trying to help the Donner Party, which is also related in the oral history of the tribes. So we basically, even though we didn't find human remains, it caused us to go back into the historical record and to, in a sense, resurrect those stories again. And it also gave us a chance to look at the Native American narrative because there is a whole nother tale there. Interesting. So is that, I mean, we can talk more about this in different projects you worked on, but is that one of your favorites or? The Donner Party is, is a favorite project, but it was also very complex and full of a lot of drama. Um, just because it was designed for reality TV almost. It right? was basically. And so, but it was, it was a good project. Um, there was a book that came out of it and it won an award, the James D's book award from the Historical Archaeology Society. So it was a good project, but that's kind of ancient history now. <laughs> so back to State Highway Administration, what exactly do you do there? What's your job at State Highway? My job at the Maryland Department of Transportation State Highway Administration is to oversee the cultural resources section there. So I have a team of architectural historians. I have a team leader. 
and I also have other archaeologists. And so there's about a dozen people in there who do a couple different things. Most of them look at Section 106, which is National Historic Preservation Act, which causes us by law to consider our impacts on archaeological sites and in architectural history. So historic bridges, historic buildings, structures, anything that's 50, 75 years of age, we need to consider impacts to those. And the other part of that section also looks at reaching out to the public. So we have a public outreach program, which primarily targets historic archaeology sites across the state. And so what you'll do is you'll see my group all across the state at different times, at least throughout the last decade, looking at sites that we can learn something more about, but also really putting a lot of effort into reaching out to the public. So that means I'll be giving and my team will be giving public presentations. We'll be creating pamphlets. We'll be going and creating even digital media. Speaking on podcasts. Yes, speaking of podcasts. (laughs) That's why I'm here. So all these sorts of things is in an effort to not only tell people that, yes, we have these, this great team of cultural resource professionals out there that are getting before the, the, the bulldozers get out there and before we demolish bridges, before we impact historic sites, that we're trying to design ways and plan ways to avoid, minimize, or mitigate our impacts to these resources. And so there's a team of people doing that. And we spend millions of dollars doing such things in, in these efforts. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. A lot of cool work that's going on. And why don't we take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can talk a little bit about some of the more advanced technological things you're doing and some of the 3D modeling that's happening across the state and other things that you're funding that are sort of at the forefront of archaeology and and the interpretation of it. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. President's Day is on the horizon. Once, the holiday was really only focused on the birthday of just the first president, George Washington. But since the placement of the federal observation of the holiday was changed in the 1970s to create more three-day weekends in the national working calendar, and because of its proximity to Abraham Lincoln's birthday, the holiday has come to be a time to remember all the great presidents. Now, you are probably familiar with the Washington, D.C. Lincoln Memorial. The massive columns and the imposing 19-foot-tall statue of our 16th president have become nearly inseparable from the popular memory of Lincoln. But something you might be a little less familiar with is the first Lincoln Memorial, located in the Abraham Lincoln Birthplace National Historic Park and constructed years before its big city counterpart. The first major memorial to Abraham Lincoln is actually in LaRue County, Kentucky. Some elements are shared between the two structures, albeit at a different scale. The Kentucky Lincoln Memorial's six exterior Greco-Roman columns don't create quite as grand a look as the D.C. Memorial's 36. But while the D.C. Memorial helps us to remember President Lincoln, the hero and almost mythical guardian of the Union, the Kentucky Memorial helps to remind us of the very human story of Abraham Lincoln's early life. Because along with the Memorial Building, the park also houses a reconstructed log cabin, which, 
at the time was believed to have been made out of some of the same logs as the cabin Lincoln famously was raised in. In fact, the cabin was constructed before the rest of the memorial in the 1890s, while the rest of the park wasn't formally established until 1911. But those logs? Not really Lincoln's. Although the Lincoln logs aren't genuine, they are at this point over 100 years old, and the cabin itself remains part of the park as a symbolic birthplace cabin. Now, there might be something poetic as we approach President's Day and thinking about Lincoln's honest reputation and the fact that someone along the way likely lied about the logs that were or were not used to build his family's cabin. But I'm not a poet, and I know it. And you've got to get back to PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Gretting. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today in studio by Julie Shablitsky, who is the Chief of Cultural Resources Section at the Maryland State Highway Administration. And before we took our break, we were talking about what exactly it is the State Highway Administration does and what Julie's work there involves. And she was talking and telling us a lot about the public outreach component. And some of the interesting things that you guys have been working on recently has involved 3D modeling. Do you want to tell us about one of those projects and why you decided to do that and what that can tell you about these archaeological sites? The great thing about 3D modeling, whether you use LIDAR, which is a scanning type of system, or you use a drone to capture the images, it really gives you the ability and the flexibility to reconstruct what has happened or what had been there. I think my favorite project has been Belvoir, which is a place, it's a plantation in Anne Arundel County along General's Highway, where we ended up finding a 32 by 32 foot square stone slave quarter. And um, after excavating it, we were able to reconstruct where different rooms were within the building. We were able to say this is where the fireplace was, this is where they stored some of their food, this is where the kitchen was, this is where these were the bedrooms were. And with all that information that the archaeology gave us, we were then able to reconstruct not just the exterior of the building, but also the interior. So that really brought to life because the important thing about Belvoir, which has that slave quarter, was that there was a descendant community that we were able to share that with. So they could then, in a sense, walk in the footsteps of their ancestors and see where they lived, what they saw. And it was really an important moment. And it shows that two things. I think it shows that this technology is able to literally have you time travel. Right. But I think the other important part is it really allows you to stop the archaeology speak and talk to the public on the level that they can understand you, which I think is sometimes something we stumble over. So that's the great thing is you don't need words. You can use these images to really communicate what you're seeing. And yeah, and it, and it kind of brings to life. I mean, sometimes archaeology can particularly when it's bits and pieces of little things, it's difficult for the public to grasp why that matters. And you can kind of reconstruct it into something that anybody can understand, I guess, is the next step virtual reality. So you literally can experience these these spaces that you've reconstructed. Because right now you look at it on a screen, right? And you can kind of move around it. But is the next step putting on a pair of goggles and walking through it? 
there's an app for that. And we have done that. And you have. Yes, with the Belvoir Stone Quarter. And so when we had the big reveal of what this looked like, is we went ahead and we played it for the Descendant community, and they watched it. And then we basically threw on a pair of goggles onto them, and they're like, whoa. And they're looking all around and trying to figure out where they're at, and they're playing with it. So it was really, they were literally able to walk through that space. That's pretty cool. It made it more real. Yeah. Any more of that coming in the future that we should be looking for? Whenever there's a chance to reconstruct what we've learned from archaeology and there's a budget for it, we will definitely use that medium for that. We have also just recently done the same thing at the Bush Tavern in Harford County along Maryland 7. We were working there as an outreach project, and the Bush Tavern was supposed to be near where Rochambeau camped his men there in 1781. And so we went ahead and looked at the backyard, and we ended up finding this stone, a building that used to be there, and then a well, and another little stone building. And so what we did is we looked at the evolution of the Bush Tavern over time, and we're able to reconstruct it, and, and this animation goes from the 1760s, 1770s, and then it goes on all the way through to the modern time period where you have it as a doctor's office today. So it really allows you to see the evolution of the Bush Tavern over time. And so these kinds of projects, do these fall under, these were are happening because they're public research or they're happening because they're triggered by a project or it just depends? Well, this one is kind of both because we do have an intersection alignment happening at that location, but we also did it and we're kind of pulled into that location because we do have an opportunity to do public outreach. So this was kind of both. And what's it like working, you know, I think people listening to this think, I think a lot of people in their mind, particularly maybe members of the preservation community, for good or for bad, think highway administration, and they're like, Ugh, you know, these are the people that are just plowing through things and knocking things over. Is it challenging? I mean, do you and the highway engineers butt heads over thing when you want to avoid and they just want to well, just dig it up and mitigate it? Or do you feel like now it's, it has become sort of an ingrained part of the process? I mean, is our cultural resources respected in a way that might surprise people who aren't familiar with the inner workings of an agency? Yeah, I think that's a really good question is that how do we balance things? I mean, we we went into school, we did all, we have our doctoral degrees and our graduate degrees, and we're put in this construction agency, and how do we, how do we dance with that challenge? And the interesting thing is that in Maryland specifically, and I know it's different across different locations because I did come from the Wild West, is that in Maryland, we do have a really awesome state highway administration who is able to balance this, this need for safe highway systems and efficient highway systems with cultural resources. So when, unfortunately, they're not always in a situation where we can preserve. Right. And especially... And you can't save everything. No, you can't save anything, nor should you. Not right. everything needs to be saved. But I will say that we have a great group of people, and we have the Maryland Historical Trust, who we work closely with, and I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, we're on the same page with each other. And if we need to consider something and look at something differently, they're there to advise. If we have a struggle, we get into a group and we try to figure out what's the best for the cultural resource um, issue at hand. And the great thing is, and don't tell them this, the engineers, but you almost have this advantage because you're the expert and they need to rely on you. So they give you, they trust you. And the administrator trusts us to get out there and to figure out what's best because there are some situations where you can be 
too much of a preservationist in a highway administration, but then you have to be careful they don't go too much the other way. Right. So where is that balance? Right, because advocates like Preservation Maryland are watching. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it really is a big balancing act. I mean, that's a lot of what's going on out there. Yeah, it is a balancing act. But the thing is, is that, especially for archaeological sites, is that there's kind of a little bit of the historic building 1960s, 1970s move firms that infiltrated that? the archaeology research. And so I see a lot of times... People think that digging up an archaeological site, even for research, is a bad thing. And it's not, because that's where the data is. The value of most of those archaeological sites is in the excavation of that resource. And I'll tell you this, is that someone who does sit right next to engineers and construction, you don't know when that private property is going to be really threatened, I guess. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. When you have a chance to get that info, you're you lean on the side of get it. Because there are archaeologists out there who would say, no, if you you know don't disturb it, you're destroying the the record if you do that. Right? Yeah, and I completely disagree. Is that if you have a chance we'll have to get someone on who can debate you next time? Yeah, you have to. Cause we'll go. <laughs> uh, but the thing is that there is definitely when you have an archaeological site and you have a budget to to excavate it properly and to get it out to the public, and it's in private property particularly. You need to take that chance and and get that data. Now there are situations where you should preserve, and you have a lot of sites that are in in great situations. Right. But and you always leave a little bit. You're not taking a hundred. No, no. Out you normally. never go ahead and mine the entire site. You definitely leave a little bit behind because you get to a point in every archaeological site where you get redundant data. Where you the more you dig, you just you're not learning anything else. So as long as you can get the location of the site, you can get some information about what it was, the date of it what the function was, and a little bit of personal history, you're done. You don't need to excavate the entire thing. It made me, you just made me stop and think for a second. You talked about 1960s and 70s. A lot of what we've been talking about is, you know, in the, in the true historical record, you know, the camps of Rochambeau and the Donner Party and General's Highway and slave quarters. And these are things that in people's minds are distinctly historic, right? But the broader preservation community, and not just the archaeology side, but the, you know, the built environment side, you know, has been focusing a lot as of late on sort of the mid-century modern resources, resources from a, a more recent past. Are you beginning to look at those things? I mean, where does sort of like highway architecture of the 60s fall into this? Is it categorically excluded? Are there things that, you know, when you say, well, you know, that thing was pretty cool built in 64 and everyone just looks at you like you're crazy? Or is there beginning to be a little bit of an appreciation for that? Where Where's mid-century modern and the State Highway Administration? I'm laughing in my mind because one of my laments is at State Highway is that all of our architectural historians love the mid-20th century stuff. They love it. They love the research. They love that you can get really behind the information that was there just, you know, 50 years ago. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's that's really not that long ago. You know, it's but they, they love it. And so there's really this respect. And it's, again, that having that law on the book... Our engineers, our administrators, they all look to us and they say, what do we need to do? And we're like, this is what we need to do. This, this is a process. So there is a love, believe it or not, for these 1960s, 1970s Brady Bunch type houses and subdivisions. And are you guys working to put any of that on the register? I mean, there are have there been sort of mid-century modern resources that you're documenting in that sense? Absolutely. Every single, if we go into... Uh, Say we have a highway and it's going right along a subdivision from the 1950s, 1960s, and no one's documented that or looked at them. We'll go through and consider that as a district. We'll look at it as a um, as individual resources as well, and they'll get documented whether it's on a short form that say that we've looked at it and this is what we think, or if it's actually eligible. Any uh, mid-century modern arche archaeology yet? 
<laughs> well, that's the thing is that World War II is a big thing. Okay. But then once you get into like the Elvis years and is the that Beatles. A, is that a historic period? <laughs> well, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> and so once you get into that mid 20th century, the archaeology stops informing you as much because you really get this influx of the written record, right? So it's still out there and it can, you it can, can do still, it. You can do it and it can inform you. But I think the value. It's just not as necessary. No, yeah. And archaeology can't always come to the rescue. And you don't always, it's not always a data source that's, again, if you can go ahead and learn something through documentation, through other resources, rather than digging something, then there's no reason to dig. Right. So if people want to learn more about the work that your folks in the Cultural Resources Division and, and broadly State Highway Administration are doing, how do they find out more about you and find out more about the public programs and things that you were talking about? Every time there's something interesting in archaeology in Maryland, I keep a Facebook page known as Maryland Archaeology, and that's archaeology with an A, so A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y. We also have a, have a we call it the Culture Resources Bulletin or the Crab. The Crab. The Crab. We all waited with bated breath for the Crab. You guys love the Crab. That's we awesome. love the Crab. So the Crab is really a great place to read about both architectural history uh, projects that we're doing as well as archaeology, and so you you can go ahead and send me an email at j-s-c-h-a-b-l-i-t-s-k-y at sha.state.md.us. And we will, we will put that email in the show information so you can just click on that link. And I will put you on the crab mailing list. Cool. And before we let you go, we ask everyone this question. It tends to be the most difficult question, which is why we wait to ask it last. Favorite historic building, site, place, what would it be? Does it have to be in Maryland? No. Okay, awesome. This is easy. It's uh, Amos Field in Scotland, and I'll tell you why. This is a medieval, post-medieval tower house, and right next to it is a large manor house from the mid-1600s. And we have been able to work a deal where I take several of my closest archaeological friends, and we're funded through the University of Oregon to go out and excavate around this tower house. That's a good deal. That's a really good deal. And it started with a, a great funder, but now we're in a situation where we need more funding to fund our trip over to Scotland. But... Um, it's only a mere $10,000 and it's because we usually pay for our own airfare. But the beauty of it is that when you're able to wake up in this 300-year-old bed with a horsehair oh, so mattress. Oh, you stay at the house. Oh, though. I stay at the manor house. You yes, manor that's house. part of the deal too is for that sure. they at least give you the lodging. The deal keeps getting better and better. I, I know. And so, you know, you're sitting there, you're waking up in this, in this bed, you get up, you grab your cup of coffee, not your tea, and you look out these windows, which are all wavy. And in the distance, you can see the tower house where you're going to be digging at that morning. And you go out to it and you're looking for the moated feature. And within this moated feature, there are coins from the time of Mary Queen of Scots. So it's this very beautiful, romantic place. And then on your lunch break, you take a stroll in the attached formal garden where there's poppies blooming and lilies. And it's, it's heaven. Uh, that sounds perfect. Good answer. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for all the fantastic work that you're doing on behalf of the people of Maryland here. It's, it's good to know we have someone like you safeguarding and watching over our resources uh, that are being impacted by the state highways. So thank you, Julie. Thank you for having me. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. 
Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving. <laughs>